Hey everyone, welcome back to Get Rooted with Robin Moreno. I'm so excited because today's conversation is more important than ever. I'm being joined by activist and political strategist Belen Sisa, who's the co-founder of the Undocumented Students for Education Equity at Arizona State University. Belen Sisa is also the former Latino press secretary for Bernie Sanders. In this really powerful and insightful conversation, Belen talked to us about her journey as a DACA recipient, what it was like growing up in Arizona in the midst of all of that anti-immigration vitriol. She also tells about her own personal journey coming from Argentina, what it was like to be undocumented, what she has and hopes for dreamers, and she shares insights and tips on how we can keep our own political involvement going as we move into the new year and a new administration. It's a very rich conversation. So listen in. It's time to get rooted. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to, to be here and to be able to, to share my story and everything that's happened in my uh, 10 years almost now of, of activism and, and political work. Thank you. So let's talk about being an activist, because I feel like in this day and age, um, you and I were talking before, just before the podcast started, you know, everybody is an activist. I think I, and you could tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like before, like that was sort of like, you know, okay, Dolores Huerta and certain people really devoted their all their time. But now everybody's an activist. We've become uh called, we've become activated to do the work because I think things, at least since 2016, have been really tough. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us your story of how did you because you you consider yourself an activist, is that right? I do, I do, and I you know I take a lot of pride in it, and I think the reason why is because I started out through my survival, right? I didn't really have a choice. Um, I uh, am undocumented. I consider myself still undocumented because as a DACA recipient, this is a very temporary program. And I think that in the last four years, we've really had a front seat to how that could be taken away um, by whoever the next president is. And um, they have the power to do it. They can if they really want to. And I started out here in Arizona, my home state, um, as a student activist, um, as a young undocumented person. Arizona was a very difficult place to grow up in. Uh, It wasn't welcoming. It was very anti-immigrant, very racist. I went to high school in Florence, Arizona, which is a small conservative town that's home to uh, one of the largest ICE detention centers in Arizona um, and one of the largest federal prisons in our state. And so I, you know, had to go to school every single day passing by those places. And it was a reality check to what could happen to my family um, if I allowed people in and let them know that I was undocumented. Um, It was a time of a lot of fear. And I didn't really start out as an activist or getting involved until I actually graduated high school uh, in 2012 when President Obama made his executive action uh, that summer to enact this program, which gave me a work permit and um, it protected me temporarily from deportation. And that was the first time I met other undocumented people like me. I was completely isolated in this small town and I didn't really know the power that I had. Um, I was scared, I was isolated and it took a while for me to realize that President Obama didn't make this action because he felt bad for us. He made it because there were brave, courageous, undocumented young people and their families who were demanding um, that he take action to protect them. And they got arrested and they were marching and they were organizing. And I was just amazed at these young people. I you know, really started analyzing myself and thinking, I can't let other people fight for me anymore. You know, these people are putting everything on the line and it's my duty now as someone who um, has been welcomed by this movement to 
really start stepping up and um, getting involved, becoming an organizer, um, especially as, you know, we were just coming out of the years of SB 1070, the show me your papers law in Arizona that was passed in 2010 while I was in high school. So this was really the beginning, I would say, of a lot of the things that came after that. But I didn't start in politics. I started in in organizing, in activism, because that's what was needed in that moment. And that's what I felt would make the biggest difference in in that moment because it was direct action. I wasn't just, you know, working for a senator or working for a congressperson and hoping that I could change things that way. I, I kind of took my future into my own hands and said, you know, we can't wait anymore. And I think that that's a little bit of where we are now, to be honest, as we uh, welcome this new administration, um, as we the Democrats now have power in the House and in the Senate, it's it's really going to come down to to pressure, to activism, to, to organizing. And I, I, I'm so proud I, uh, to be, you know, an activist to have my roots start there because I feel that most of the change that we see isn't done by one person. It's not done by a politician. It's done by the power of the people who pushed those people in power to make these actions happen. I think that, thank you. I think that's completely beautiful. Um, It's beautiful. And I love, I love the idea of power, right? Because I want to go back to talk about your family, um, mm-hmm. about when y'all came to America, what you were leaving, what were you hoping for, and what that experience is like. Because you know what strikes me when you're telling right that beautiful story and the idea that yes, you had to stand up and that yeah, you're not going to give it to someone else, right? You know, we can love mm-hmm. you know, Sanders or Joe Biden, whoever it is, right? Mm-hmm. That, that at the end of the day, you know, that we have to like hold them accountable and that we do. Mm-hmm. Have- and I think that I feel like that's a big shift. The idea that you you feel moving from helplessness, perceived, right, you know, a felt mm-hmm. to an actual realization into personal power, right? Especially, mm-hmm. you know, if you know you you know grew up in this climate that was very anti-immigration, or you felt like you couldn't um, even necessarily come out of the shadows. So I want to though mm-hmm. go back just a little bit further to talk about your parents. And you came around two thousand, so that was that was uh, like twenty years ago. Is that am I yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. Um, So me and my parents came to the U.S. in the year 2000. My dad actually came a few years before us um, to kind of settle, um, find a job, see what it was like to be here. And then shortly after, me and my mom came uh, together. And I I remember it pretty vividly, I have to say. You know, we came with visitors' visas. So I feel like that trumps a lot of how people view immigration, too, um, and how unique everyone's stories are that, you know, a border is not the only place that we should see immigration, that actually 40% of people who are here undocumented come here with visitors' visas and how we should take that into account when we think of of solutions, right? Um, And I was so excited. (laughs) I was six years old. Um, I remember it was my first time being on an airplane and I was so looking forward to just reuniting with my dad. We had been separated for almost two years while he was in the U.S. And I missed him. You know, it was our family was separated temporarily and it was all in hopes of having more opportunity. We actually ended up coming to the US because there was an economic recession that was taking place in Argentina. Um, I was born in Buenos Aires and um, our economy was going through a terrible, terrible time where there were no jobs, um, there was no upward mobility. And that eventually led my parents to go to a place um, that they didn't know anyone, they didn't speak English, and they took a huge chance. And I think it's very ironic that we ended up in Arizona, uh, one of the most anti-immigrant states in um, in this country, I would say. Um, and it was 
an interesting experience to say the least um as a as an immigrant in the early 2000s it was before 9-11 um and then shortly after is when you know that tragedy struck our country and things began to shift i um lived in mostly middle-class white neighborhoods and I am white passing. So no one ever, (laughs) you know, thought, oh, there's an immigrant or that person's undocumented. And I I think that that is something that shielded me in some ways, because unless you heard my parents speak Spanish or with an accent when they spoke in English, they probably would have never guessed that I was an immigrant. And that helped my family protect itself. It helped us live in the shadows. But at the same time, I feel like it was in a way almost an assimilation for me. Um, I was ashamed of being undocumented. I didn't want to speak Spanish in front of all the other kids. I, you know, wanted to hide in some ways and just be like they were. And I would say that now as a 27 year old, as someone who has become an activist, who has become empowered and really saw the gift that being an immigrant was, I'm a completely different person. I am more comfortable in who I am. I feel like I am the true me. And it's crazy to look back now because I didn't have that I wouldn't say intelligence, but I didn't have that insight then, right? I was young. I was a kid. (laughs) And my parents did the best that they could. But I think that growing up in this environment, growing up in this state, really taught me a lot about organizing and and dealing with the obstacles that were going to come later. Because in politics, right? We're trying to enter the space of where people like me normally aren't accepted. They're not normally sought after. Um, And when I became the National Latino Press Secretary for, for Bernie, if we even look back at Obama's presidential race, there would have never been any chance that an undocumented person like me would have been hired for a position like the one that I had. And it, it was about survival, you know, growing up as an immigrant undocumented in Arizona, having to go through that assimilation, through that shame, really prepared me to break through in, in these spaces because it's about constantly fighting for what is right for your community to make these people understand that it's not as simple as they think. It's not as black and white Mm -hmm. as they believe it to be. And that the solutions that we come up with should have that complexity behind them. We should have people like me writing um, immigration policy, right? Not people who have never (laughs) experienced immigration in their life. That, that's beautiful. And you're exactly right. There's so much, I'm just like, yes, I love so much. You <laughs> I, feel like, I, feel, I mean, I know that that must've been, and that was an evolution, right? An evolution mm-hmm. to come here and think, okay, yes, I'm going to, and maybe that the idea of like family separated because people, that that's such a common theme, right? Whenever mm-hmm. so many people that I know that, you know, came uh, to America, it usually was like a parent who like came first and there was, or they got, and they had to, they were like, you know, they had to stay behind, you know, mm-hmm. because they had to sort of like forge um, like a new path. And so there was that. And then there was the reunification. And then it's like a new place. And then it's all the hopes and dreams you have. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's then landing in Arizona, which is like yeah. so <laughs> great. The universe had for us. <laughs> but you know, in a weird way, I mean, it may be that, I don't know, that there was something in there. Like you said, like, okay, and you go through the processes, right? So the process could have been like, I want to just fit in. Like, that's a very primal, normal, the instinct to belong 
is one of our most primal instincts, right? To belong, right? To community. And so if you saw people that I guess kind of look like you, but they talk like that, like you're going to mirror that because it's survival. Um, and that makes sense. But it's also what I think is, and I, I don't want to I, you know, I don't want to overstate your case or say things that aren't true, but I do think that in a way, though, having to identify and re-identify, and I love the word complexity, because when you talk about immigration, when you talk about identity, when you talk about politics, you know, we come from such like a patriarchal, colonized idea, mm-hmm. like two-party system, The you know, there's always like this binary, and you're like, no, like it's compl- it's very complex. And I would just say, and I think that you're exactly right. And so what I was taking away as I was listening to you is these ideas that all of who we are and maybe what we used to be ashamed of is actually like our, like that's our medicine. Those are our gifts. Those are our super- Our superpower, yeah. <laughs> and that's why you're perfectly poised because you can speak to it because you, it's a, it's a felt lived experience. You know what it's like mm-hmm. to have to, you know, like felt othered or like be ashamed or having to navigate or be quiet or not tell your whole truth, right? And so mm-hmm. I think you're- Completely right. But can you talk to us about the idea of when you, because I know there's a, we talk about coming out, right? Like a coming Mm -hmm. out and there's many coming outs. There's a coming out, you know, with gender, you know, or gender Mm -hmm. identity. There's, there could be a spiritual coming out. There's a a lot of times I feel like as, you know, humans, uh, I don't know, we, we tend to like choose what, what face we're going to show at this point, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm going to be this way here and I'm going to be Belen here and I'm going to be this. <laughs> but, but, but when you bring your whole self is when you're your best. Right. And so mm-hmm. we talk about the process of your own coming out as undocumented, because I can't imagine that living, um, I hate the word in the shadows. I mean, you can tell me if there's mm-hmm. like language around this, that could be easy, that can be clean, that like they could be safe, you know? And so what was mm-hmm. that process like when you decided to declare and proudly say, yes, this is, this is who I am? Mm-hmm. I, I would definitely call it living in the shadows because that's how it feels. You, you feel like you can't be 100% yourself. And for me, living in the environment that I was living in, in Arizona, in a small conservative town, um, I tried to live up to everything that I thought I was supposed to do right, which was be good in school, which was join a sport. So I was a varsity cheerleader. Um, You know, my senior year, I was the homecoming queen. I was like trying to fit this perfection and hoping that once I left high school, that would mean that certain doors would open for me because that's what you're told by everyone surrounding you, by your family, by your friends, by your guidance counselor, by your teachers. And so that is the plan. That was what I followed. And when I got to graduation day, instead of having it be the happiest day where I felt like a new chapter was beginning, it felt like it was the end of of my world because I couldn't get a driver's license in Arizona. I was undocumented. I couldn't get a job because I didn't have a social security number. I couldn't go to college because I couldn't afford it. And I also couldn't get financial aid for it. So it was just hitting this dead end. And I remember that even before I got to graduation, I the first person that I told I was undocumented was my guidance counselor. Because it was that time when everyone was applying to colleges, they were figuring out their next steps. And he looked at me and he was just like, I'm so sorry. I I don't know how to help you. And that was the feeling of of being so alone as, as a young person, having to figure all of that out and feeling like there really was no one who understood what was going on. And even now I get a little bit teary eyed talking about it because I think of, you know, wow, 17 year old me like really went through it and now she's here, (laughs) you know? Um, And that was the process. It was hitting dead end after dead end after dead end. And then I, I feel like DACA, the DACA program, it didn't solve all the problems. That's mm-hmm. for sure. But it empowered me in a way to to fight for myself 
because it brought me to my community. It showed me that there was another way that um, I could do what I dreamed of doing, which was to go to college. Um, and eventually actually helped me figure out what my major in college was going to be, which was political science and history. Before that, I wanted to do other things like be a business major. And now I'm like, why would I ever do that? I don't, <laughs> like, I don't ever see myself um, having been fulfilled or being happy that way. And that eventually led me through the support of my community, through um, being trained by the very uh, undocumented organizers who fought for DACA um, to eventually tell my story. Because it is a process to tell your story. You know, I didn't just wake up one day and was like, I'm undocumented and unafraid. <laughs> like it didn't happen that way. It took a while. It took months for me to feel comfortable and saying, you know what, this is who I am. And if people don't accept it, then they're not on my side. And I know that I'm on the right side of history. And the first time I told my story publicly was actually at um, a Democratic Party state committee meeting that they have like every few months. I was invited to speak because I had started a petition. This was like my first ever activism organizing action that I had ever done. And it was petitioning representative Paul Gozar, um, who was actually one of the representatives that um, helped the insurrection at our uh, U.S. Capitol that happened just a week ago. Um, he was my congressperson. And I petitioned him. I went to his office and I said, you need to support immigration reform because that was in 2013 um, when that was a possibility. We actually saw, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel um, that immigration reform was possible for our community. And he completely dismissed me. And so I was lobbying everyone that, I, that would listen to me about why they should get behind this petition and help us push him. And so I told my story at this state committee meeting. And it was the first time ever. And I remember I got up on the stage and I looked out and it was mostly white older people. And I was like, this is my worst nightmare. <laughs> like these people are like the people that I went to high school with or like in that small town that probably would have been horrified to hear that I'm undocumented. And so that was like the first test is facing the biggest fear that I ever had of being rejected by the people that I thought were my friends, which did happen eventually after I started being outspoken. A lot of people um, didn't want to be my friends anymore. And that's okay. But at the time, when you're 18 or 19, it feels like the end of the world. <laughs> so when but, was, well, how old were you when you were petitioning um, the, your congressman and when you um, told your story for the first time? I was 19. Okay. And so 18, 19. So yeah. take that process because you're looking at this, like I'm with you, like you're looking at, they see these <laughs> old white people and they look like the people that you, you know, you had to like assimilate with, right? Like and you wanted to fit in and, mm -hmm. later, and you're sitting there and you're going to tell your scariest truth, which is mm -hmm. right. And so how did you, how did you do it? Um, I only had about five minutes, so I wanted to touch on the pivotal moment, right? It was me actually communicating with my, with my community, meeting them, knowing that they exist, right? And talking about where I grew up and how eventually that led me to realize that I shouldn't be ashamed of, of being who I am and that. I was suffering. My family, my community, my future was on the line that tomorrow I could be pulled over for any reason. And even though I had DACA, we still couldn't get driver's licenses in Arizona. So that was putting me in danger every single day. And it still is. And I needed them to understand the urgency behind what was happening. And, you know, a lot of people cried. I almost cried because I didn't realize in a way, almost as I was telling it, the 
power that I had by just telling my story. That wasn't something that I was privy to, you know, before that. Mm -hmm. And so many people came to me after and actually supported what I was doing. And I, I realized, you know, sometimes you have to do things that you're scared of. To, to make change happen. And I was really hoping what came out of it is that other young people who were in the same position as me, who felt like they were so alone, would join me in, in, in organizing and in, in fighting. And that eventually led to fighting for in-state tuition in Arizona for dreamers, because we had to pay like foreign students, which is triple the price. Which is, but that, which that's, that's nonsense. That's completely nonsense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I mean, we that, couldn't drive. We couldn't drive. <laughs> but it could be the difference just so people get it out there. Like in-state tuition, um, and you tell me it's right, but like it, that would be $300 a class versus like, you know, like 1500 or $3,000 a class, which would make it, it would make it like not feasible for people. So normally when you pay in-state tuition in Arizona, it's about 1200 a year. So that's two semesters full time. Um, we would have had to pay $24,000 for one year. Which, like, who can do that? <laughs> exactly. Especially someone who can't apply to scholarships or get financial aid. It was almost like, and I talk about this a lot, you know, whether you're undocumented or even with DACA. Um, the politicians in Arizona, and they're still doing it today, um, their goal was to make life so unbearable for immigrants in Arizona that they would just leave on their own, um, which meant blocking them from jobs, which meant blocking them from going to get higher education, which meant blocking them from driving safely, which is actually a public safety issue because people are going to drive anyway. Um, it was just this environment of, we don't want you here. <laughs> That's what we were facing. Like, I was like, I just want to go to school. And they're like, well, we don't want you here. <laughs> you know, like that was what we were up against. <laughs> so I just, I want to talk about just really quickly, like, so your, your power of story, right? Because what happens I feel like what happens when you just like, we have so much news, like doom scrolling and news overload and 25, you know, every, it's like constantly going, is that there's really like more information, but less connection, right? Mm -hmm. And so you just read these headlines, but you disconnect with who the people are, right? You know, when we talk about DACA or like immigration or like the border and, you know, and it's like mm -hmm. the more stories that you put out there, then we, as you spoke to the complexity, you begin to humanize it and you begin to understand it, right? Like you said, yes. it's not just a border issue and it's not just, you know, Mexican-Americans, you're Argentinian, like it's a very rich, complex thing. And so when you can stand up and give you, add your story to the archive, right? You realize mm -hmm. It stops being a stereotype. Stereotypes are when we tend to yep. tell the story, but it's like mm -hmm. you, know, you break down stereotypes because you tell the multi multitude. And then you also, for you, get to rewrite that story, you know, mm -hmm. which is empowering, which is soul retrieval, which is like, you know, taking back and empowering and like, you know, changing the destiny. So I get that. I mean, I think the trick too is when you look at a place like Arizona, I feel like it's always comes back to story. People don't understand the story of like this country, the fact that Arizona actually used to belong to Mexico, the immigration mm -hmm. would court immigrants, right? With Bracero prog pro uh, programs and we would call, we need immigrants. So it's like this, all of a sudden, it's just like, you just forgot everything. And so I feel like mm -hmm. well, all of that should be, I think Arizona like bans, you know, was banning like Mexican American mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of these things, but it's so important for anyone listening to know the true story like of America. Yeah and things like that because it's really like much more complex but and it's know. very intentional too mm -hmm. I definitely want to make that note you know the reason why these things are being blocked from being learned is because those in power don't want people to know the truth um and that's exactly what we saw with Mexican-American studies that's exactly uh, what we're seeing when our stories aren't being told by local newspapers or by by the media. And um, that's 
you know, what changes people's minds. That's how you create change is by teaching the true history and also um, allowing people to give their points of views and their stories. Because I would say that anyone who has empathy or compassion would see what was happening as an injustice. Um, And now we're starting to see that in the way that people vote, um, which is incredible seeing all the work that went behind that is is just i can't believe i witnessed history (laughs) can we we talk about there's so much to talk about with you but because we're talking about that now specifically i mean you know which arizona went blue okay Mm -hmm. when i don't even when was the last time it went blue i mean uh bill clinton okay right so like 96 um Mm -hmm. Okay, so like 24, 25 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like as old as you are. So basically, <laughs> like, right? Like the entire lifetime, a generation ago is when it happened. Um, and like how, you know, there was the mobilization. Can we just like touch on that? Because I want to land on that goodness because that's such a beautiful story, especially when you have mm-hmm. a story of Arizona, right? Um, you know, big, huge, you know, land population, you know, used to belong to Mexico, just saying. And now mm-hmm. and then this, these, you know, cr- like just punitive, like humiliating, unjust policies, right, of Joe mm-hmm. and other people. And that, you know, taking but that back, doing that work. I mean, how does that inspire you? And how, how and what takeaways can we have to continue do the, doing that in all like 50 states and throughout our lives? Because that felt like, discontinued, uh, deep and committed mobilization and organization of voters. Mm-hmm. And it took 10 years, I, I would say even over 10 years um, for us to reach the point that we are now. And a pivotal moment of that history was the passing of SB 1070, which to those who don't know what that is, it was the show me your papers law that would allow the police to stop anyone and ask them for their citizenship status um, and proof of that, uh, which is hilarious that those who defend it would even say that that is um, constitutional, considering that how would you know to ask unless you're asking everyone, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that created probably one of the darkest, I would say, time periods in our state. Um, People were self-deporting. There were entire cities that were just abandoned, like Mesa, Arizona, uh, where, you know, there was a huge Latino population, um, immigrant population. People were leaving because they feared so much that they would be put in an ICE detention center and deported and separated from their families. And the unfortunate truth is that that did happen um, to those who stayed. I was very lucky that that didn't happen to my family, but it could have. And I think that is the, the pivotal point that got a lot of people organizing out of survival again, just like I organized out of survival um, in 2012 and in 2013, I was in high school during the SB 1070 era of when that was passed. And it put Arizona on the map, but in a bad way. <laughs> there are people boycotting Arizona and rightly so. But I remember, you know, as a 16 year old watching TV and my mom crying, watching then Governor Jan Brewer sign that law Um to be the law of Arizona. And I remember seeing the marches and I remember seeing the actions that were organized by organizations like Puente, Human Rights Movement. Um, Other organizations that came out of that were One Arizona, uh, which is a hub, basically an umbrella for all these other organizations. Uh, We had Lucha, and so many more that I, you know, would be here all day naming, but um, they started mobilizing, they started organizing, they started reaching out to community members and saying, what's going on isn't right. But at the same time, if we don't get politically involved by voting, by mobilizing and keeping our politicians accountable, we are never going to move forward and we're going to stay stuck here until we flex the muscle 
of, of saying we have a voice too. And we aren't going to vote for you if you are a racist and an anti-immigrant politician. And what transpired from that was um, a recall campaign um, to a politician named, uh, I don't know if you know him, but Russell Pierce. He was the author of SB 1070. And so these community groups organized to recall him and to put someone else in his place. And they won. Oh, my goodness. And they won. Yeah. And then a couple years later, as we continued to fight for immigration reform, as we continued to fight against against SB 1070 and driver's licenses and in-state tuition, there was also another campaign to um, beat Joe Arpaio, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was one of the most infamous and notorious and racist sheriffs in the history of Arizona. He was like the Bull Connor of the South in Arizona. (laughs) And we, in 2016, kicked him out of office. And um, that was, you know, a light in the darkness of 2016. But it took years. He had been in office for over 20 years. And our community voted him out. Um, And we sent a huge message to the rest of our, of the country saying, you know, now we're facing Trump, right? Mm-hmm. We were all questioning, how are we going to, how are we going to survive this? What are we going to do next? And Arizona was leading the country and saying, we've been living, we've been living it. Now let's, let's, let me, let us teach you <laughs> how we survive it, how we organize against it. And All of this was a culmination of organizing for different issues, of taking politicians out of office, of registering new voters, of getting them to understand that if we don't vote, it's it's like we don't have a say at all. And these people continue to win elections who pass laws against us and how important it is for us to vote in every single election, whether it's local, federal um, or statewide, that Every single one of these politicians has the power to change something, whether it's in our school or it's in Congress. And we need to start having uh, politicians who actually represent the population of our state. And that took years. It took years to educate. It took years to register people to vote. Um, And it took years of mobilizing and and holding politicians accountable for us to reach 2020, 10 years later, (laughs) you know, having Joe Biden win the presidency, uh, which was community led. It wasn't by his campaign. It was because we had set the groundwork for years to have been able to reach the point where we actually beat one of the most white supremacist presidents we've had in in our history. It came down to Arizona. <laughs> well, we know. We know. We were watching news. <laughs> we were. We were right. We, we knew all the counties in Arizona. We were waiting for the people when they went back and they had to like remedy their ballots. Like we were like. I feel like the entire country was like, "Yes, Arizona, we're with you." You know, we like. Wow. Oh my god. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And it was the Latino vote, you know, that took us over the edge. It was years of organizing um, grassroots movements to, you know, be able to be powerful, right? Because an unorganized community is a powerless community. If we're not organized, you know, you can bet that the opposition is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they definitely don't have our best interest in mind. No, I love that. An unorganized community <laughs> is a powerless community. But that's because it's like as messed up as it was to live under that, right? Since 2010 and show me your papers and, you know, the evil Jorapayo. I, I hear mm-hmm. you because, you know, I don't know, maybe while the rest of the country was like, yeah, you know, we have Obama, we have Obama <laughs> whatever we yep. have. It was like, uh-uh, it's coming for you too, right? You know, yeah. like, and so when it did, right, when we had the election in 2016, um, then, and everyone was like, what? You were like, wow, this is, I have been living this. And so, you know, you were able to share and you had been laying mm-hmm. the 
And I think that that's exactly right is to like get hyper local and get involved and realize that. And, you know, you, how did you make that transition from activist? Um, and maybe it wasn't a big transition, but I want you to tell me when you, how did you get involved with the Bernie Sanders campaign? Because you worked with his organization and campaign two times. Is that right? Which one? Yes. So again, you and so not only were you um, one of the only undocumented people to hold uh, that title of the Latino press secretary, weren't you also one of the youngest? Yes, I was 25. <laughs> I was 25 and during the 2020, um, this past election. Um, and I, I mean, I haven't done the research behind who has held the position before, but I definitely think I'm one of the youngest undocumented uh, people to in history to hold that position. So um, it's a lot to hold on our shoulders. <laughs> I know you have done a lot and you haven't. <laughs> but you know, when we look at statistics of Latinx support for Bernie Sanders, and it's also young, and that we know that Latinx uh community is young, right? We, we are, it's a, it's a young community. Um, what do you think the appeal was there with Bernie Sanders? Or you could sp- speak to you, like, what was it for you? Like, why were you um, inspired by this campaign and the mm-hmm. Senator? Um, and, and what did you, and what work did you do specifically to speak to this community? Cause I feel like it's work that still needs to be done. When you look at 2020, I mean, there's mm-hmm. still like, right. There's still swaths of community, whether it's like in the Rio Grande Valley, mm-hmm. whether it was in, you know, Miami or what, you know, right. Like we're not a model mm-hmm. now that we're not, yeah. a model. but so, you know, because you were on the ground as the Latino press secretary, <laughs> um, why, why Bernie Sanders um, what were the issues that matter to you? What are the issues that should still matter? And what what advice do you have about speaking to this community that y'all were able to do so effectively? Excuse mm-hmm. me, uh, real quick before we uh, get to that uh, question, uh, Robin, is there a way that uh, can you close your uh, curtain? Yes, uh, I'm sorry. I've been like trying. I don't want to interrupt the conversation, <laughs> but I've been like, I've been trying. I know you look like you're going through it with the sorry. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I'll, uh, I'll I'll edit that out. So this little segment. Is it possible? I was like, maybe it's just, sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you, but like, because you're so eloquent, but I was like literally trying to hide over here. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I think that might be better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yay! <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> you. I was like, oh. <laughs> okay, we're good. Yes, we're super good. Okay. So awesome. um, do you remember the question? It was sort of a long one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I'll go ahead and start with what, you know, shifted me into politics. Um, I actually had been campaigning um, as a volunteer in local campaigns here in Arizona. So I wasn't just an activist. Um, when I started seeing the dynamic of the inside outside strategy, which is what I believe in now. I believe that we need to have an outside grassroots movement to hold our politicians accountable. I also believe that we need to have allies inside um, of the government, whether it's local or federal to help us push our agenda, because without that, we're not going to, we're not going to get very far. Um, and that eventually led, uh, which I'm really excited about to one of our own, one of our activists, Carlos Garcia, um, won a seat in the Phoenix city council, which is incredible. He was the leader and executive director of Puente, which fought against SB 1070, which fought against our and to be able to say, you know, this person was marching with us and now he has the power to pass legislation um, in Phoenix to change the lives of that community that, you know, was was such an inspiring moment because he was undocumented once, too. Mm-hmm. And that could be me. That could be, you know, anyone um, who has been fighting this for years and years and I realized that I wanted to get more people in office. Um, I had done the activism work. I um, had been on the ground. I had done the organizing. And now I wanted to get behind campaigns that would be um, voting for the agenda that I was fighting for. Um, And eventually that led me to um, 
becoming very good friends with Erica Andiola, who now works for Raices, Texas, um, fighting for um, immigrant rights, um, fighting for those children who have been separated at the border. She actually was the first national Latino press secretary for Bernie Sanders in 2016. And she has become one of my um, very close friends in the movement. And she knew that I loved Bernie that I was already volunteering for him, um, trying to get people registered to vote um, and to know who he was. And so she reached out to me and said, hey, our campaign is hiring in Nevada. Um, so I started off as a field organizer. I was like one of the worker bees <laughs> during the first campaign. And it taught me a lot. Um, it taught me how to organize electorally. It taught me how to talk to different communities because I got to work in different states for the campaign. And it's not the same to talk to someone in Nevada um, as it is to someone in Rhode Island, uh, which is 40% Latino. But most people wouldn't know that. <laughs> because I, don't Rhode I, knew that. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, it's 40% it's Latino. And I got a chance to organize there during the first campaign. And it was an incredible experience because there is no work like the work of talking to everyday voters. Um, it sets you up to really understand the issues that people are struggling with. Mm -hmm. And it also teaches you how to community build because organizing for a candidate is hard. Um, you know, people have been disillusioned. People don't believe that politicians have their best interests in mind because they've been let down so much. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also what inspired me and made me really connect with the Bernie campaign because he wasn't your average politician. He was fighting for things that while I was talking to people on the ground, that's the need that I saw. Um, income inequality, you know, has reached its highest. Uh, people want a raised minimum wage. People need health care. People are going into debt because they can't pay their medical bills. Um, we need, you know, affordable housing. We need um, to cancel student debt. These are things that I just kept hearing over and over. And truly the only candidate that was fighting for that change, that big change that we needed, not incremental, was mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders. And personally, for, for me, it was that seeing him fight for immigrants, even when it wasn't popular, seeing him go to Immokalee, Florida, where there were um, tomato farmers being, it was modern day slavery, pretty much, um, going and meeting with them when he had nothing to gain. That integrity is something that I have yet to experience from another campaign. Um, presidential anyway. And you know, and, it, you couldn't even vote for him. Was that right? Or like, you know, I thought no, that I couldn't, I couldn't vote for him. Yeah. But I, you know, this is the way that I see it. I couldn't vote for him, but I could get hundreds of other people to do it. And that was more powerful than one single vote. That's right. That's right. And I, and I only said that because it was speaking to the power of, you know, it was in transaction, you know, right? Like, so if the senator mm -hmm. hears about these things for people that maybe can't even turn around and vote for him, that it's not about transaction. It's about like transformation, you know, mm -hmm. about really yeah. equity. Exactly. It's, really, it's embodying that. And I think that that is super amazingly powerful. And now that we have, so here we are, right? So we've done, okay, like, right? Like grass led, mobilized. Now we have um, a democratic, uh, president, like, you know, executive branch. And now we have the Congress and the Senate. What do we, what do we, can we take our foot off the pedal? You know? No, like, not at all. Like, right? <laughs> there might be, like, there might be like, okay, you know, like we, we, we right. Okay. Right. Trump, like adios. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can lean back at all. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like that, that that's not the case. And so what, what can we, what can and should we be doing, especially because all the issues that we talked about, right, which is like mm -hmm. living wages and universal health care and canceling, you know, student debt and affordable quality and, you know, equity and all the things that we inherently care about. How could we, how can we keep the pressure on and what would you say could be the advice for people out there listening that you are now activists, like we all are, mm -hmm. like we've all been activated. So how mm -hmm. do we keep the fight in 
where maybe there's not such an obvious, you know, mm-hmm. obvious like villain. Um, but we know, like, just like you said, right, even under Obama, we had like, look at Arizona, we still that it exists. And so how can we stay vigilant? And mm-hmm. I would say that now is the time to put, you know, your foot on the gas and not not put your foot on the brake at all. And I think, I would like to mention, you know, when President Obama was in office, there was a time when we also had a Democratic Senate and House. And for example, you know, the DREAM Act, it it failed, even though we had both houses. So I want that to be an example to what it is that these next few years are going to be, because our job is not to stand back and say, well, Trump is gone now. Hopefully Joe Biden will do the right thing. No, (laughs) it's up to us. It's up to us to make the change that we want to see, especially when it comes to legislation happen, because politicians have their own agenda. They have their own priorities. And sometimes that's not necessarily the priorities or agenda that working class people have. And Latinos, of all the issues that I talked about, we are the most affected. We are the ones that, you know, are disproportionately impacted by COVID. We are the ones, one of the biggest groups in our nation that doesn't have health care. If we aren't fighting for ourselves, we can't expect these politicians who are in office to just do it on their own. So if anyone out there is wondering, what can I do now? Look around you. Look in the community that you live in. I guarantee you that there are organizations or organizers already doing work that usually goes um, unnoticed for, by the media and by by most people because we're so stuck in our own bubbles, right? And I think COVID has kind of made that a little bit worse. Um, and so it, it really is going to come down to first looking within and saying, what do I have to offer to these movements? What skills do I have? What can I do to... Um, make change? What can I do to help my community? Um, Whether that's art, whether that is if you're a journalist covering stories that normally aren't covered, whether that is, you know, maybe you're a really good organizer, you're good at planning things, you know, all of those skills can be used to fight for healthcare, to fight for immigration, to fight for canceling student debt, to fight for climate change. As we're seeing now, young people uh, with the Sunrise Movement doing. But first, you have to ask yourself, what can I do? And then you have to reach out to those in your community and start doing the work. Start asking them, what do you need? How can I help? Because if we just sit in our houses and just wait for someone to come to us and say, hey, <laughs> we need your help. Can you please come help us organize for this issue? We're probably just going to be sitting in our houses forever waiting to to do something. So I would say, you know, it's up to you. Um, You are the change. You have the power to enact all of the legislation, to push politicians, to organize your community and really create a change. And maybe you don't want to be in the front lines, right? There's still something for you to do. There's always something to do. And and I hope that listening to this will inspire you to to get involved because the work isn't over. If anything, the work is far from over. And there are a lot of people struggling in in our country right now, whether they've lost their jobs um, or lost their health care or they've lost a family member. And I think that is perfect grounds for creating, you know, maybe not immediate change, but creating a movement of empowered people who will create long-term change, which is exactly what we need. Thank you. That beautiful. Yes. Yes. 
I feel like listening to you, like what we've talked been talking about too, is within that's you know what if it, within your skill set, within your medicine bag. When you look and say, how can I help? Right, it's the things that you love to do. You know, listening to you, I would also say, you know, t- sharing your story. You know, sharing yes. that you started right with like that committee. You know, all those years ago, by having the bravery to tell the truth of your story, and, and because of that, it humanize it continues to humanize and connect. And we, you know, if we can talk, if we care to, like you said, you know, it depends if you want to like be on the front line or not. But just the the, the truth of you know being affected by COVID, economic, you know, disenfranchisement, mm-hmm. you know, right, like systemic racism, you know crushing student debt, the inability, you know, to start your own business, you know, like, uh, like the lack of healthcare access and, you know, like generational diabetes that runs in your family. Like we all have that. And we all, you know, saying, you know, it starts to, it starts to go from less to an issue to like a person. Right. And then, mm-hmm. like, okay, and then this is like a human, you know, this, this becomes human and I can understand mm-hmm. that and change that. And it's going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> I just want to give that forewarning, you know, it, it's, it's going to take a lot of courage um, and facing the things you fear most sometimes. Maybe that's sharing your story. Maybe that's talking in front of people. Maybe that's introducing yourself to someone you don't know. But the thing is, is we can't stay in our silos, right? So it's going to take un- uncomfortable actions sometimes to you know, break through. Um, but if you stay in it, you know, you're going to feel the fear, but when you look at it from the outside, it'll look like courage. Um, I was scared (laughs) to tell my story the first time, but then people came to me and said, you're so courageous. And I'm like, that's the last thing I felt. (laughs) Um, and it's going to feel that way just from someone who's experienced it, because I know that there's a lot of, of new comers to activism, you know, people who are just now starting to get involved. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it'll definitely be, be worth it. That's for sure. <laughs> it's completely, completely needed, like now more than ever. And so what what's next for you? I mean, I have to say, I think that you should, this is my opinion, under right coming from an elder you <laughs> for office, like you're, I don't know. I feel like, you know, it's, but at that said, um, you know, what do you want to do? Because the world will always tell you what they want from you, but what do you mm-hmm. want to do, you know? Yeah, um, I am in the process right now of trying to figure out how my skills will be best used uh, for our movement to, to create change for, for working people. And I have to say that right now, I'm a little burned out from campaign life. Um, it's so tiring. Um, it's just so fast pace and moving things change every single day. And I think that I want to go back to my roots of, of being in an organization or doing more activist driven work. Um, and you know, my specialty is communications. So hopefully I am wanting to make that shift. And, you know, if one day campaigning for another great candidate, um, maybe AOC running for president, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) crossing our fingers for that one um I will go back to that I'm not saying that that is not something that I ever want to do again but I definitely think that it has its phases and I think that when your your own body tells you you know you can't do this for the long term I try to to listen to that because if not then I won't be of much use to, to the movement or to anyone if I am tired all the time, right? So I am looking forward to finding my next home uh, organization-wise and doing more national activism work. Um, there's going to be work to be done, that's for sure, um, especially with immigration um, to pressure the, the Biden administration. So we'll see. <laughs> I I am not at all worried about where you'll land at all at all. But I, but I do want to just land on this point of honoring your body and taking a mm-hmm. part because you know we've spoken to a few activists uh, on the podcast. Very we kicked off the podcast actually with Monica Ramirez, um, mm-hmm. who is an amazing you know activist, um, and she founded the Latinx House and Latina Equal Pay Day, and she works with farm workers. Um, and what we talked about is so much when you're in the lucha, right? Like the struggle. Mm-hmm. To fight 
call it, you get so burnt out. Anytime you do anything, right, like full cylinder, you get really burnt out. And so like, how do you, and so we talked about that, like centering joy as resistance, you know, Mm -hmm. rest as resistance. And she said this really beautiful thing where it was like, you know, I can't be out there and fighting for equal wages and time off and a good environment, you know, for, for others, if I didn't give that to myself, right. That mm-hmm. was, that was not truth. That's disconnection. It's being without integrity. And so I, I just wanted to say that I really am so glad to hear you, you know, not run into something else because <laughs> you're so talented. I don't have, you will have a hundred jobs and the world will, and the world will always ask things from, from you. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it. I think that it's a really, it's a very rooted and self-possessed person that says, actually, you know what? I'm honoring my body. I'm taking mm-hmm. like, and I'm- it's hard. It's really yeah. hard, especially in the environment that we are all in because the world doesn't stop, right? There's always an issue. That's the issue that we're fighting for, um, for equality, for change, for, for the people that, that we serve. Right. And that's never going to go away but we only have one body and in one life. And I think that for a lot of us, we've faced a lot of trauma too. And it's so important to take care of ourselves, uh, whether that is taking a moment to journal or to meditate. Those are things that I try uh, to do. And for me, it's hard because I'm like, I need to go do the next thing. Right. But if I don't take those moments, um, then I can't be of much use. We can't be of much use. We won't be very strong as a whole if we are all humans who haven't dealt with, you know, what they're feeling inside or what their body is asking them for. And that's often overlooked. But as people who maybe are just starting out in activism or getting involved in politics, even in the past year, you already probably have experienced the exhaustion that comes with that, with watching the news every day, with having a million Zoom meetings or interactions virtually. And, you know, we have to be strong. (laughs) We have to, you know, give ourselves that time to to recharge our batteries um, and to be able to be strong as a whole, to be able to fight for all of these things that we want to change um, because we just, we won't get there. Um, And it's going to be a very long four years (laughs) if we don't take that time for ourselves and to rest. Rest is okay. (laughs) No, it's true. Rest is, I mean, it's, (laughs) cyclical, right? Like in the same way, like in the cycle of your day or the cycle of the month or the cycle of the moon, rest is always part of the process, but we tend to want to live in the like active part all the time. Um, and like you said, there's always, I mean, the world's going to always be on fire, especially the news will always tell you, right. There's going to always yeah. be fine. Something's mm-hmm. happening. Um, and so to consciously, um, disengage and just re-engage with yourself is it's conscious. It's a conscious act that is not always supported by community. So, you know, what, what, what are the practices you do? You alluded to some, I think you said journaling, Mm -hmm. like, what would you say? Like, you know, we always ask the question, which is like, what's, what's in your self-care medicine bag, like standing where Mm -hmm. you are and all the totality of your experience and gifts and, you know, wherever you've been in a big journey, like highs and lows, like what, what practices do you dip into to Mm -hmm. root yourself? to ground yourself and you know you said you were looking for your next home but like until you find the next job like how do you stay home within yourself Mm -hmm. well meditation has been very helpful for me I try to do it in the morning um, usually just 10 minutes it doesn't have to be long Um, and also walks Um, sometimes it's the simple things that you know bring us back to what matters Um, walks always remind me of like breathing in fresh air Um, and I take my dog for a walk sometimes I'll go with my mom and we won't look at our phones we will just talk. And I think that that's sometimes so underrated, but I know that when I come back that I already feel better. (laughs) Um, So those two have been, you know, one of the two things that, especially during this past year, um, I feel have been really amazing. And then also exercising. Um, 
like really sometimes I feel like I have so much energy, especially since we're inside for a lot of the time now that I need to like get the energy out. I need to like jump up and down. I need to like do something because I'm just sitting all of the time and just the endorphins make you feel better. Um, I know that some people that's not their thing, but you know, I do all kinds of exercise and it's really helped, especially yoga. I actually miss yoga a lot. I used to do hot yoga um, when I lived in DC during the Bernie campaign. And I remember that it was just peace. <laughs> like for one hour in the day, I was like, wow, it's just so quiet. And I know that after I was done, it was like I recharged my battery and then I was ready to go to bed. And then the next day, you know, start my day again. Um, and everyone has their things, right. That make them feel better. But for me, those, those have been the three that have really kept me going in moments where everything just felt like a lot, which is pretty much this entire year. So <laughs> I know. And like, I love that you said it's a simple things because I feel like sometimes we can overlook like the simple mm-hmm because we tend to want the shiny and new and maybe potentially complicated. Um, you know, the, uh, the Aztecs had this worldview that the world was what they called slippery slick. And it was this idea that you could right, like a pandemic's going to come and stuff happens. But they also had this antidote, which was the what they called the four paths to rootedness. Um, and I love them because out of all the things they could have chosen, right? And this is like mm-hmm. 500 years ago, that, that what they considered to stay the paths to rootedness were literally what you just said. It was moving your body, right? It was, mm-hmm. which could be exercise, right? It was because the idea was to get out of your head and drop yeah. Body. Um, it was balancing your emotions, which most of the time we can, or what two easy ways are journaling or mm-hmm. like breathing, because anytime you have an over emotion, you just sort of get it out. Mm-hmm. Um, like your in breath, out breath. It was community, and you're all about community. Um, mm-hmm. And it was nature, and you know, being where you are, and you know, walking outside and with your dogs. It's like because nature is a portal to like just connection to spirit, to divinity, to like just deep gratitude and fresh air too. Yeah. Which is beautiful. So I basically you're a wise woman is what I'm saying. You're really, thank you. I try. It's hard. (laughs) So where can like people find you or keep up with you or, 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 you know, how could, do you want us to keep up with you or find you? (laughs) Maybe maybe you want us to go away. Yes. No, I do. Always, always. I, that's also how you organize social media. So of course, um, I mostly use Twitter and Instagram and you can just find me by my name, Belen, B-E-L-E-N, Cisa, S-I-S-A, um, on Twitter and Instagram. And that's usually where I do all of my, you know, calls to action. I give updates, you know, on specific issues that are going on. So if you want to follow me, I'm on there. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, with this, with Belen, thank you so much for your time. This was so beautiful and impactful. And I appreciate you sharing some of your precious pause to still, you know, be with us in community and to spread the word because we we do want to stay connected and activated. Um, and honestly, this has been such a pleasure because you're like really like such a wise person. And I just look forward to everything that you have to do. But I also respect and honor and encourage you to stay with the in-between spaces because that's really where a lot of rich regrowth and you know regeneration happens. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been, you know, such a insightful conversation. And I really appreciate that we ended on the note that we did because at the end of the day, it's it's what's most important is is us, right? To take care of us for the collective. So thank you. Thank you so much. Be sure and follow us on social media and subscribe everywhere that podcasts are played. Until next time, my friends, stay rooted.